It's Thursday, April 30th. We're studying 2 Peter, and I know I kind of left everything just hanging and chopped off yesterday because we were in such an interesting part of 2 Peter. So uh, I'm really reluctant about today in getting into where I have chosen to go, but I just think, it, why not, right? And, and when would we ever do it if we don't do it now? So uh, COVID-19 has led us to this. So let's uh, let's look at 2 Peter chapter 2, and uh, you remember the context here about false teachers and the warning that they might exploit you, and uh, we're supposed to watch out for that, be able to identify them with things like their greed. And then the whole point about this section that we're now starting in verse 4 is that their condemnation and destruction is certain, it's sure. That's what this is all about. So we have some illustrations coming, biblical illustrations, about the coming judgment. Now, the part of this that we dealt with last time is that God did not spare angels. He certainly judged them, and we looked at the biblical accounts of that in Old Testament Hebrew canonical scripture, the recognized God-breathed scriptures of the Old Testament. And we talked about how when they sinned, God judged them, but we said, well, we got a problem here because cast into hell and committed to chains of gloomy darkness and kept there until the judgment, we said, well, who are those? We know that in canonical New Testament, authoritative God-breathed scripture, uh, Jesus is there with the uh, demoniac, and he the, the demons say, don't you know, send us to this judge, don't torment us before the time. It seems as though it fits that there is something here related to a uh, sealed up, confined judgment of certain demons, fallen angels, that uh, have to await their final judgment before God at the final day. Well, I, we, we are supposed to get into, we'll see if we ever get there, I'm not sure we will, uh, talking about Noah. In other words, we had then, not only did he not spare angels, but he didn't spare the ancient world. So here's the tie here. Didn't spare angels, didn't spare the ancient world, uh, and he preserved Noah. So the account of Noah and these angels is the connection that we're trying to figure out. And so everyone in their minds goes to Genesis 6. I had a little discussion with one of our pastors last night about all of this and, and my view. And I, I kind of said, well, I'm not buying the view that Genesis 6 is a picture of demonic uh, spirits having sexual intercourse with human beings. And I, I guess the problem is I kind of built the argument in the opposite direction, which I kind of feel like I'm going to do again today because I at least want to talk about the things I figure I'll never have a chance to do from the pulpit, but I want to show you the intertestamental writings, at least two of them, that deal with this topic. And there's no confusion here. And I often say this on call-in programs or whatever, and I'm trying to answer Bible questions about Genesis 6, uh, where the sons of men go into the, the sons of God go into the daughters of men. And then this discussion about the Nephilim, that... Um, their offspring. That passage can be interpreted in a couple different ways, right? And and I said briefly at the end of yesterday's study, well, my view is not this mythical view. Now, it's not a strong exclamation point that this is not my view. It's not my view. I mean, I can see the arguments in both directions. Uh, but I want to show, as we looked at 1 Peter 3, we looked at Jude yesterday, I want to at least look at the intertestamental writings, which I often throw out there, and, and I'm no scholar in intertestamental writings. I like the study. I have the the the, the um, 
you know, all the definitive works on that. I spend time reading them. I read the Apocrypha every year. I try to at least. I get through it. I spend time in it regularly. The, the idea of the extra biblical writings, let me just get some categories in place here. And this is a jazz here, a little improv today. But the idea of extra biblical writings, there's a set of extra biblical writings that most of us are familiar with because you know Catholics and they believe in something called the Apocrypha. Apocrypha means concealed or hidden. And the Apocrypha is a set of books. Uh, most of them are filling in the intertestamental uh, history, at least First Maccabees in particular. And then there's other books that speak of things that took place, usually much like we see Ruth as a story, an individual story during the period of the judges. Well, the same thing happens in the Apocrypha. Stories are told of individuals during the period of, say, the Babylonian exile. Uh, so you get a lot of that in the Apocrypha, and it's decent to read. The church has always read it, and it's never been considered canonical. And by that, I mean part of the standard of, of God's writings, that it uh, measures up to the standard of God's inspired word. Um, until, of course, Vatican II, when, um, not Vatican II, um, I'm sorry, um, the Council of Trent, thank you, get my Catholic uh, councils mis mixed up. Council of Trent then declared it to be authoritative scripture in response to the reformers who said, um, you know, we can't, can't have the church selling indulgences and getting people out of purgatory. Well, they came across and of course it's been there and everyone knew it, a passage about uh, the fallen on the battlefield and, and Judas Maccabeus praying for them. And they said, well, right there's a prayer for the dead. And so anyway, this is when the Apocrypha was added officially by the Roman Catholic Church in the Council of Trent in the post-Reformation period. So less than 500 years ago. Um, they're always understood as writings, but they're never accepted as canonical. Well, there's a whole other set of extra biblical writings that I referred to yesterday. Um, I, I talked about them. I don't know if I use the word pseudopigrapha, but the pseudopigrapha speaks uh, of um, a lot of things going all the way back to the book of Genesis and the creation account. And they're fanciful. They're myth uh, mythical. They're uh, so out there. Some of them are very bizarre. Uh, and there's a lot to read in this category. But um, pseudo means false. Pigrapha, the writings, they're false writings. But they're called that usually because they're attributed to people that did not write them. And there's a couple of them uh, that speak to this issue in Genesis 6, which seems to fit nicely in filling in, well, what does this mean in 2 Peter chapter 2? So I just want to show you a couple of those. Uh, Enoch, and you have a lot of revived interest in Enoch, the book of Enoch. Uh, and there's actually several books to the book of Enoch. There's five, at least, classically. There's seven, two others that have been added, at least in terms of discovery and connected. But let's just talk about the five books of Enoch. The first book of Enoch, which is probably back to around 250 years before Christ, uh, speaks of this scene in Genesis chapter 6 and without any confusion. I mean, there's, I mean, you, you don't, you're not left with any question as to what at least this writing means. It's pseudopigrapha because Enoch didn't write this, obviously. Uh, Enoch, all the way back, you know, to the book of Genesis, early in the book of Genesis, we're not, this is not Enoch's work. Nevertheless, it's called the book of Enoch, and it takes the Genesis 6 account of the sons of God, the Ben Elohim, and the daughters of men, and it describes what happened. Let's just look at this passage uh, from the Lexham um, edition. Verse 3, why did you leave behind, speaking out to these fallen angels called watchers, by the way, which I think we dealt with uh, at least briefly in um, the book of Daniel earlier in our passage, I think we did in 2 Peter. Why did you leave your high and holy and eternal heaven? Why did you go and sleep with the women, this is a euphemism, of course, for sex, clearly, and be defiled with the daughters of humans, taking for yourselves women like the sons of earth? 
making and begetting for yourselves giant children, the Nephilim. Okay? And you were holy, living, eternal spirits. But when you were defiled with the blood of the women, the blood of the flesh, you brought forth children and you long for the blood of men, just as any of those of flesh and blood do, who those who die and are destroyed. And it's like, why did you do this? And Enoch is the messenger giving this, you know, this condemnation of the uh, watchers are the sons of men, sons of God, the Ben Elohim, the sons of God who came and had sexual relations with women. That's the picture. It's clear. And there's so much more we could read in the first book of Enoch, several chapters here talking about that and several other things. So that's one. And then you think, okay, that's how this pseudepigraphal third century BC uh, work, uh, at least second century BC, third probably, um, depicts Genesis 6. There's clarity here. Okay, uh, what about the incarceration? The Book of Jubilee, another um, another uh, intertestamental pseudepigraphal work. And in this work, uh, this is Charlesworth's edition, chapter 10. I can just put two, two verses together, verse 1 and verse 5. It talks about in the third week, look at this, the polluted demons. Again, this is the clear understanding of what they believe happened in Genesis 6. They began to lead astray the children of Noah, Noah's sons, and lead them to folly and destroy them. So these demons, these fallen demons in the context, want to destroy Adam's, or I'm sorry, Noah's children. And the sons of Noah came to Noah, their father, and told them about the demons who were leading them astray and uh, blinding and killing his grandchildren. That's right, post-flood. And so Noah prays here several verses later, and uh, he says to God, shut them up and take them to the place of judgment, these angels, right? These polluted demons. And do not let them cause corruption among the sons of your servant. Oh my God, because they are cruel and were created to destroy. So the point about shutting them up and keeping them in some kind of place of judgment and not roaming around on earth being tempters and doing the work is here attributed to Noah and his prayer. All right, this is the explanation in uh, the intertestamental pseudepigraphal writings. And some people say, well, right there, it's clear. I just would encourage you, and again, I'm no scholar. I'm not going to be writing any books on the pseudepigraphal or apocryphal books. Uh, I do read them and have read them for years. Um, and I would say I have a problem getting my New Testament theology from uh, these intertestamental books because of the rest of what you read. So much of it is fanciful and mythical. It just does not, it's never been considered canonical. I mean, even the Roman Catholic Church with the Apocrypha, which is understandable, so many things there are historical between the, the Testaments, but in the Pseudepigrapha, and sometimes we call it the Old Testament Apocrypha, which is different than the Apocrypha, or I'm sorry, the uh, apocalyptic, Old Testament apocalyptic literature. And um, it's not considered Scripture was never. The Jewish people of the intertestamental period, the Second Temple period, we call it, did not regard these as, as canonical. Although there's some books that try to talk about the high regard, uh, certainly for the book of First Enoch, for instance. Um, anyway, so my um, response, I guess, would be this. There are several things. Number one, it just doesn't seem to, and I've already made this point, I guess. I don't want to take my New Testament theology from these intertestamental books. I think there is clearly, I, I'm not going to get around the fact that if you go back to our passage here in 2 Peter, there are angels that are somehow chained up and they're kept until the day of judgment. So that's clear. Um, I have a problem at least with, and it, it's a problem with a, with a comma, not an exclamation point, 
with the concept of angelic beings taking on human form, fallen angels, and having some kind of sexual relationship with the people and having children. It just does not seem to match the biblical description of what we have in terms of angels. And to argue with myself about that, I said, well, okay, there are scenes in the scripture, very few, but a couple, where you have angels coming and not only appearing and connecting and touching people, but eating food with Abraham, for instance. And so, you know, how do they eat? Well, I don't know. Uh, that's a great question. So, but nevertheless, I'm at a place where I'm saying it just seems too far afield. And of course, the the uh, Genesis, I'm sorry, the Matthew passage, Matthew 22:30, talks about in the resurrection, you're not going to marry or being given marriage. You're like the angels in heaven. Uh, now, that doesn't exclude the fact that there could be angels that take on human form and they're not in heaven. I mean, and and have sex with human beings. I mean, that that's clearly not excluded there, but at least the concept seems to be, of course, you're angels, you're not tactile, you're not embodied, you're not enmeshed, you're not physical corporal beings. Um, I guess there's too many options in the context for me. Chapter 5 talks about the godly line of Seth and the ungodly Cainites um, and the sons of Cain. So in the biblical prohibition always of marrying those who do not have a devotion to God. We see that early in the book of Genesis. So um, I think there's enough context there to talk about the fact that there probably is a more um, natural explanation within the context, and not to mention that the sons of God, Ben Elohim, the sons of God at least as a, as a phrase, as a, as a concept, is used of people throughout the Bible. It doesn't have to mean uh, human beings. Now, I know there are counter-arguments to all of that. And I've spent 13 minutes already uh, talking about this, and, and that's all I'll have the time to deal with today. And I guess I'll make this the first double episode of, of a, a verse. But uh, tomorrow we'll get to chapter 15 talk about the flood. But I at least wanted to say some things that I wouldn't have other times to say. I'm not getting to quote First Enoch or the Book of Jubilees very often. But that is why so many people like to see this as what we've described. And I'm just saying, I'm the, you know, I, I'd like to say maybe, I don't want to be as weak as, as saying the jury's still out, but I mean, I could be wrong on this clearly. But if I am wrong, then I'm going to say it seems like the intertestamental, pseudepigraphal, mythical writers were correct. And if that's the case, well, then that's the case. But in our passage, I think I'm still saying I'm not sure who those spirits are in prison. Uh, they're demonic spirits, of course. The angels in Jesus' encounter know that that's an option, and um, we'll have to wait and see. So I know people have strong opinions about this, and the more they study it, the more it seems like we, like we get confused on a higher level. But uh, it's fascinating. Every pastor, I guess, when they preach through Genesis, have to make a decision on this. I remember taking classes in Bible college, um, in my undergrad in dealing with writing papers on this. So it's there's a lot to it, but uh, there's a lot of stuff for us to consider today. Let's call it a very interesting parenthetical episode of our Second Peter study. And tomorrow, Lord willing, uh, I will give you my word. I'm going to get back to looking at the text of Second Peter chapter 2. We'll get into verse number 5 tomorrow, Lord willing. All right, we'll see you then.